Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to I'ma Let You Finish listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash I'ma let you, I-M-M-A-L-E-T-U. That's betterhelp.com slash I'ma let you, I-M-M-A-L-E-T-U. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. What's up, everybody? It's I'ma let you finish the show 88 with your host, Court and Amy. 88 Keys, baby. 88 Keys. On the Pantheon Podcast Network. Welcome, welcome, welcome. What's up, Rames? How you doing? I, you know, spring has sprung. The grass is raised. My allergies are kicking in. Mine too. Yeah. Mine too. (laughs) There needs to be a certain level of allergy checkup where you go. It's not COVID. And then right. you just keep moving. Kind of, sort of. I yeah. mean, you know, with the 100,000 COVID tests that I have stored up in every time somebody's <laughs> like, hey, we have a free test. I'm like, thank you. I feel like it's now like part of my Band-Aid. I know. Like but hydrogen you know peroxide. They, they, they do? Yes, they do. Great. Because, <laughs> no, I do. Because I gave myself one like two weeks ago. Uh, so I was going to uh-huh. babysit and I had been feeling really shitty. I knew it wasn't mm-hmm. COVID, but I said, let me do it. Okay, first mm-hmm. off, you need a degree in fucking astrophysics to figure out how to use this thing but that's neither mm-hmm. and i looked so i figured i'd use the fancy pricey one first mm-hmm. that the mm-hmm. city was giving out mm-hmm. and it went expiration date april 22nd 2022 and i went oh fuck let me use this yeah right so <laughs> who knew <laughs> well Great. speaking of expirations uh-huh you know we keep saying we're not going to talk about him but then oh, he keeps God. doing shit and he is still Yay, whether we want to deal with him or not, he is still a relevant, well-selling, important artist in hip-hop. And he is up for several Grammys this year, including Album of the Year. Mm -hmm. But he has been, as he's been doing for quite some time now, you know, basically threatening and stalking his ex-wife on on internet and threatening her current boyfriend. I and just don't now, know why people think it's funny or cute. I'm trying to understand. I don't think they do anymore. It's yeah. like, if this was, I've said it before, if it was your sister, if it was your mother, if it was your best friend, if it was your coworker, you'd be like, yo, this isn't good and we need to do something. I don't, I don't believe because someone is famous, they're not capable of acting like an unhinged person and doing something. He's acting like an unhinged person I am not a Kim Kardashian fan. 
I do not watch the Kardashian shows. I could give two fucks about any of that shit. But what I am is a person who says she's still a woman. And this, there's nothing about this that anybody should find entertaining. It's irresponsible. And I'm glad, like, you know, I can't stand D.L. Hughley. I'm just not a fan of his. But at least I agree. I am like seeing these grown Black men standing up saying, this is not good. And it's not right. Because well, it's not. What's happened is um, he also went after Trevor Noah. I believe he called him. And please, um, I am apologizing for the use of the word. I am quoting Kanye. He called Trevor Noah, who mm. is biracial, a coon. Mm. Yes. Um which is beyond unacceptable. We're I not mean, even going to get into that. It's not, right. Right. It's just beyond unacceptable. But the point is, is that. Especially uh, since, why does he always have these kind of words for other black people? You never hear him say that about anybody. When it comes to black people, he's really, he, yeah. I can't stand that dude. But, I really but can't. The, the upshot of all the reason we're talking about it is that the Grammys have said he will not perform. And, you know. And it was an unannounced performance. So it was right. supposed to be a surprise performance. Right. right. And, and you know, so, you know, the fact that you said, you know, a lot of people are using the first of performing at the Grammys is not a right. And remember, a, the Grammys didn't say it. His people said it. The Grammys said it to his people. And then they announced it publicly that he would not be doing his unannounced performance, which to me also it feels like it was done to try to maybe get public opinion on his side it had, a little bit. Um, I just think that they know that it's it, it's a potential disaster. And 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 the thing is, performing at the Grammys is a privilege. It's right. not a right. He is right. not constitutionally obligated to show nope. up. It's nope. a privilege. Trevor Noah, who has said that he did not want to cancel him. He said, I want to counsel him, not cancel. Trevor Noah did not make this request. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Actions have consequences. And I will Absolutely. say this. And then I, I the you know, and I, again, whether you I'm not just directing at you as a general, whether you mm -hmm. like Kim Kardashian as a person or whether you watch. I've watched the show. I mean, I watched it in the beginning with something mm -hmm. on. What the fuck? Mm -hmm. You know what right. I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, my opinion about her has changed over the years. But the point is that even if she was the most despicable human being in the world and a fucking woman who gave blowjobs in the street, it doesn't matter. Right. He's threatening her life. He is threatening the children by an extent. And he's threatening Pete Davidson. He's threatening people. So actions have consequences. He will not be performing. And life goes on. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it'll probably boost ratings to see if he runs out and does the, you know, a, a old dirty bastard. <laughs> Wu-Tang for the children. Um, That's one of the best lines ever. Ever. It's one of the best lines ever. And it's become ever. part of the lexicon. I mean, he was like, Wu-Tang is for the, what is he? Wu-Tang is for Wu -Tang the kids. Wu-Tang is for the children, for the children. <laughs> because he misheard Sean Colvin mm -hmm. and he, no, that was one of the that was one of the, <laughs> that was the night of soy bomb too. Mm -hmm. I worked at Columbia then, so and Sean Colvin was on Columbia, and this was her night. She's waiting for Sunny came home, and Bob Dylan, who was on Columbia, was doing his. Yeah, it was not a good sudden, night for Columbia artists. Soy bombs. <laughs> It was excellent. What the and fuck did that mean anyway? What I don't soy know. I mean, you know, <laughs> soy bomb, as opposed to they didn't have almond milk back then. So it was soy bomb. Um, all right. You wanted to talk a little bit. Do you want to talk about Top Boy first? Because that'll be a quick and dirty for me. Well, that's your show. You love it. I love all Top my Boy. friends love it. They love it. Everybody's so happy that it's back. Let and me you tell know, you something. Give me a bunch of good looking guys shooting each other in the head I mean, and I am there. Wait, and then you sprinkle some accents on top of that and it's like, oh, I'm boom. sorry. 
accent, perfection. you're being kind. They're speaking in a foreign language. <laughs> it's perfection. It's no, yeah. it's a re, it's a very good show. It started mm-hmm. out as Top Boy Summer House, which was sort of, you know, a little, you know, less money was being pumped into it, mm-hmm. a little a little grittier, you know, and then Drake watched it. It was like a cult hit on Netflix. Drake watched it. He and Maverick Carter and and Future have pumped money into it. So we have a lot of location shots going on. Mm -hmm. But the acting is really good. Kano, Mm -hmm. who we love. There's Mm -hmm. a couple grime stars in it. Little Sims. I'm the last person to realize plays one of the female (laughs) leads. Um, It's really, you know, every show with black people and drug dealing and guns gets compared to The Wire. So that just speaks to The Wire's importance. Absolutely. But it's really good. But yes, you need. I have that full series on a friend of mine who worked at HBO and he gave me the full Wire series on DVD. I don't even have a DVD player anymore, but I still have that. I still have it too. never get rid of it. You need, but you do need a, this needs, Mm. you need a translator for this. But But the music's great and it's a great great look at London, it's just a really good show. So it's on Netflix right now, the last two seasons. And um, yeah, watch it if you enjoy hot men shooting each other in the head, which I'm mm-hmm. like, yay. <laughs> uh, woo-hoo. Um, all right. You wanted to talk a little bit about something that is near and dear to you, which is uh, record sales or more CD uh, appropriately sales. CD sales. Well, is it a fluke? What is it? CD sales are up 17% and the sales are up for the first time since 2004. And I've been having a lot of conversations lately with people talking about wanting to own their music again and liking to have hard copies of stuff. And I'm wondering, is this a fad or is is it a trend, right? Because part of these sales going up, is it due to last year, Adele came out, Adele literally sold almost a million CDs you know, and hard, cop, hard, hard copies, hard copy CDs. Little Nas X sold a bunch of CDs, wow. hard copy CDs, and so did Taylor Swift. Right. So these. So I'm wondering, is this an artist driven thing? There's certain artists that people will always like because Adele really does skew like an adult artist. And I believe a lot of adults still have their CDs yep. and they're going they, they're not maybe as, as, as Spotify. They may listen to that, but still have their CDs and the stuff that they like to listen to. And a Taylor Swift who has that still, I think these records kind of brought her back more to her country base, the, the yeah. Evermore and, and things. And an older it's, base. They're yeah. growing older with yeah. her. So I'm wondering, is this, uh, was it artist driven? Because last year was a strong year for the artists who would skew to people who actually still buy CDs? Or is this something we're seeing in the future like vinyl, where vinyl made a comeback and people like holding the the music and looking at the art. Do you art. think it's a reaction in any ways to the bad press Spotify has gotten as well? That people are kind of like, even though no one's getting rich, they go, if they're thinking that way, like, you know what? At least if I own the CD, I'm not like dealing with Spotify. You know what? I You know, I think that I think it's twofold. One, CDs still sound better than most of the music on these streaming services, the way sure, they compress sure. the sound, which is why, you know, they're all trying to go like Tidal, which has the best sound. Apple now has this new area where everything is remastered for that to try to make the music sound like it would sound in the studio. I think it still sounds better. Dude, I, you know, 
I started really thinking about subscriptions and the other day and everything is a fucking subscription, right? Everything. Mm-hmm, everything. Like even if even if you get new software from your computer, if you get before you used to buy home the office and have it on your computer, now all of that stuff is a subscription. And I, wow. you know, you start to look at how much you're paying a subscription like and a you're like and you're it's kind like a of like to it. you're kind yeah. of like can I own something? So it, I, I, is it a little bit of that? You know, yeah, I still like be. to own my music. I do. I, I I will be honest to say, when everybody at the end of the year was doing their Spotify streaming report, I, I had one for the show, which right. had great numbers. For Courtney personally, they didn't even generate one because I don't, I probably listen to two songs a year. Well, I will say this, and I think, and then we can talk about some of the music we listen to. And I have been lax and not announcing that we're going to have a fabulous guest in a few minutes, Dan yes. Charnas, who's talking about talking about streaming and music. Um, we'll introduce that in a second. But I also wonder, maybe I'm reading way too much into this. I mean, we're in very kind of chaotic times, and maybe there's a security of owning something as opposed to depending on technology. Right. You know, maybe there is some to that, like, I want to hold it in. I want to have my music in my hand. I still love owning it. I just in case the world comes to a screeching. (laughs) I have this weird thing about we're paying these tech companies to stream music. You know what I mean? When you own it, when you when I own it and I can pay whatever. And it'd be one thing if I felt like, great, I'm doing this and artists are really getting a lot of money, but they're not. They're paying for people like us who talk. They're making a bunch of money on these on these tech right. sites, but the artists are still getting pittance for their music. So I still like to own. I like to pick. I you know I went to try to throw. Out, I've gotten rid of a bunch of CDs, but I still have thousands. Yeah, me too. But I've gotten rid thousands. of a lot of them. I've gotten rid too, but I still have thousands and thousands. And each time I go to start throwing chunks of them out. I'm just like, I just can't throw out music. I can't yeah. do it. I can't do it anymore. You know? Um, all right. Um, speaking of CDs, I just want to talk a little bit about the Rosalia record mm-hmm. that was released and I'm going to mangle the title. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm actually not going to mangle the title. Mm-hmm. It's not that bad. Moda mommy. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, listen, this girl Talk about a rollout. This girl has uh, released like six singles already, and Mm -hmm. she's just a machine. So most of us got it. She is from Spain. She came out of a sort of neo-flamenco background. She's a very good singer, obviously a great, you know, um, and her her I think it was her first album, but her first American album just was a critical fave. It did really well. But what's been interesting about her, this album is kind of she's been doing a lot of collaborations with other Spanish speaking artists, her records are all in Spanish with a lot of Spanish speaking artists, but mainly Latin reggaeton and Latin trap artists like J Balvin, Bad Bunny. Uh, this is why I people. think some people didn't realize she's from Spain. You know what well, I mean? That's because- that's been the controversy mm-hmm. because some people she has won Latin music Grammys and Latin music awards. And some people have said in the okay. urban categories. too. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Some people have said, OK, you know, she is a white girl from Spain. She is not Latina. She's European. You know, she is his. She is Spanish. Does she have the cultural right to dip into this? And it's a controversy. But I will say that in her defense, she is young enough that she can honestly say, yeah, but I also grew up with this music that I'm I'm playing with. And this record is very good. It's all over the map. And she is super eclectic. And I would say she's the closest thing to a Spanish speaking 
FKA Twigs or a Robin or somebody who doesn't play by the rules. So right. I do recommend the record of that. It's called Multamami. She's all over, you know, it's a I, great think record. She's, I think yeah. she's really and interesting. And, and the current single, Chicken Teriyaki, I, I love oh, it. Oh, I'm sorry. The current single? That was uh, last night. She has a new <laughs> single out. Oh, okay. <laughs> gotcha. Don't you have your Don't you have your Rosa, Rosalia singles <laughs> alert coming in on your phone? You're so yesterday, Corey. I mean, oh my gosh, I'm late. I'm late. I'm late. <laughs> and you wanted to talk about this very cool record. You always turn me on to cool shit. Oh my god. Okay, so listen. There's a duo that uh, uh, Charlotte Adjei and Bolis Pupal who. For the last couple of EPs and years, they've just been performing as Charlotte Adjaye, but it's always been the two of them. They're a duo. And it they're their French electronica world. It's such a mix of music. It's really, really, really good. African beats in there. And they have a new album called Topical Dancer. And they talk about racism and just the politics of being a woman and writing and being a person of color. And I always love her music because it is a mix of world and, and friend, you know, me, anything Frenchy, bring it over here. I'm into it. And I just love this album. It came out uh, two weeks ago and it has been on full repeat. And I recommend everybody that yeah, get it. That and the new Charlie XCX album, baby crash is Fucking amazing. I love Charlie X. Yeah, I mean, I like her a lot too. She means I she's like her that, a lot too. She gives me the kind of pop chick I like. Yeah, you know no, what I, I mean? like her too. It ain't always so polished, but it's really fierce. And she it, can also sing. Yeah, too. and that's the thing. She's a really good writer, mm-hmm. and the songs are produced really well. And it just makes me dance and move my head. And it's perfect for spring. Yeah, it really, she, really is. It's no, she's fun. Yeah. All right. I would we would like to introduce now uh, Dan Charnas, who's an award winning academic and writer and former A&R man, was one of the original writers at The Source, worked at American Records. He's uh, he was the uh, writer of the book, The Big Payback, and then co-producer and writer of the VH1 series, The Big Payback. He now has a new book out that I am reading that I have to tell you is so freaking good. And it's called Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm. So we're going to talk to him about that. And it's... it's, I'm I'm so excited that he's about to come on because you and I have talked about this for a long time. You know, it is amazing to me that I don't know more about Jay Dilla because I know his name. I have some of the early records. I have, like uh, you know, one that is... uh, one of the first ones he released. Donuts, but, I, I think. but yes, but I never understood. Well, we are going to get a crash course. Full fascination and why he means so much to so many people. You know? Yeah. So we are going to get a crash course from the from the expert, the Dilla, <laughs> the Dilla, the Dilla expert, the. Um, yeah, who the I, fa- I'm too. I'm like you. Who I believe is like, on with us right now. What's going on, Dan? Hey, Dan. <laughs> What's up, y'all? Hey, hey, Dan. Hey. <laughs> How you doing? Good. Good. Well, good I to wish be we here. did have uh, a video because this is such a great album uh, book. You know what I mean? Book cover. Really <laughs> yeah, nice. Ro- Rodrigo Cra. Hey, can you hear me? Okay, is my yeah, audio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah we're great. here. Great, right. great. Mm-hmm. great, 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 great. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's gorgeous. I'll describe it. <laughs> no, it's just like to see people pumping money into art direction for books 
warms the cockles of my heart. You know? <laughs> well, I will say this, you know, uh, MCD, which is the imprint, uh, you know, Sean McDonald's company that signed this book. I believe that Rodrigo Corral, who designed the book, I believe he is, I don't know, a, a partner or, or something like he's integral to their, to their approach for a, a lot of their books. And mm-hmm. I was so thrilled that's oh, gorgeous. That he was working on this, and I, I, I there's a story behind this. If you wanna, if you wanna yes, hear it right now, absolutely yeah. do. You know, I am a Virgo, which mm-hmm. means I have a control freak <laughs> issue, uh, and it, it 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 was the bane of my A and R career. I think it was why I wasn't so great of an A and R person because I always had issues with letting my creatives. You know, I was too in the mix. I think. And a lot of things. Um, and so I had to learn that balance of just when you have a creative, let them do what they're going to do. And of mm-hmm. course, reporting this book, there's a story about Jay Dilla in the studio when he had people come in and do pieces for him, whether it was uh, a verse, whether it was uh, Kareem Riggins coming in to drum. He really trusted his creatives. He wasn't a control freak. Um, and so I really made it a point to just, okay, you know, I have ideas of what this cover should be. I've, I've said what they are, but I'm going to see what Rodrigo comes up with. And what he came up with Gorgeous. was this cover that doesn't have my name on it. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I was like, You're correct, sir. Yes. <laughs> and you were like, excuse me. <laughs> and, and, and listen, no, no, listen, I, I loved it. That, right. that was not a thing that I needed to be convinced on. I said, right. that's dope. Right. But also really a, I think it was an important, I don't know. Political is the word very strategic thing because now that people have seen this cover, it's almost like it's a graven image. Like if they treat it like it's a holy object. And one of the reasons it's holy is, is because it's pure. And the reason that it's pure is that it does not have my name on right. it. It's right. Just it's his book, James. not your book. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which, you know, it, it interesting. We can talk about a little later, this whole thing about the religiosity of Dilla. But I think that that, that decision to not put my name on the cover and to really let James have that in a huge way mm-hmm. with the block lettering and with the one image, the dot matrix image, like, it's you know, gorgeous. like I, one of the things I did say is it's gotta be shiny. It's gotta oh, it's have some shiny. Shiny. Right. It's very shiny because James really- loved that. Yeah. So, we Courtney and I have talked about this. I mean, obviously, you know, our backgrounds. And so, I mean, I remember being in a room with the only rappers I'm actually friends with tribe. They're my actual friends, but being in a room at a oh. professional level with tribe when beats rhyme in life, I must've been doing the bio. And then this is the first time I think I really heard the name. I'd heard some village, but really heard the name. And, but we've talked about, he's one of these guys. Dilla was one of these guys that was like a secret weapon but really wasn't so secret in a way. So could you just tell us what drew you to him? You know, because well, there's a my- mythology around him. There really is a mythology sort of around him and his career. Yeah. Well, I'm pre mythology because I'm old. 
So I just remember when he was like, you know, it really goes back to my time in the record business when I was working for Rick Rubin. And I remember getting the Far Sides demo for, you know, their what would become their first album and really not moving fast enough uh, on it. Like I was still saying, well, maybe is it I would do this thing where like, is it good enough for Rick? You know, which was the wrong way to think about whether you sign an artist or not. Right. Um, and so while I was hemming and hawing on that, Delicious Vinyl made them a deal. And really Delicious was the best place for them because Mike Ross saw their creative vision, really let them bring it to fruition. And they had this amazing producer named Jay Swift. And when we heard after the, the debut album came out, after the success of it, Jay Swift was splitting from the far side and starting his own label. I was like, let's go get Jay Swift because mm -hmm. that's the secret ingredient. And it was us, Deaf American and Tommy Boy in a bidding war for what was Fat House Records, right? Mm -hmm. And Tommy Boy won that bidding war because Rick never bids high. Mm -hmm. uh, in the meantime, I was like, oh man, I guess the far side's ass out, you know, like Jay Swift's gone, what are they going to do? And Mike Ross, Delicious Vinyl, said, oh, no, we've got this kid from uh, Detroit named J.D. And it's just like, imagine the three dots, right. <laughs> the ellipsis. That's my response. Like, what, Detroit? <laughs> like, nothing, no hip-hop comes out of Detroit. Like, well, J.D., like, how are you going to replace Jay Swift? And, of course, that notion was disabused in August of 1995 when we... Uh, at the House of Blues when they debuted the video and the song. They had an uh, album release party for The Far Side. And it was just, that was when I like, oh, JD. <laughs> and then he started to create some songs that had not a lot of commercial success, but a lot of anthemic and meaningful uh, resonance in the culture. So you had Stakes as High, you had Still Shining, you had, uh, oh God, what am I missing? Um, you had the Beats, Rhymes, and Life stuff. Um, uh, he, you had uh, well, he did running for Far Side, yes. right? Well, running and also six other, five other tracks. Okay. On that album. So by 1996, he was a force, and he was one of my favorite producers. But there was no mythology around him then. All we knew is that he had become essentially the Far Side's junior partner uh, in this production crew called the UMA. Um, and it really wasn't until. After I worked with him, after 1999, when I brought Chino Excel to Detroit, that I began to understand, oh, he's more than just this dope producer. He actually is changing some things and having some deep, deep influence uh, in a way that we had never seen before in hip hop. Yeah, but what's different about him is there's usually those guys who are like that and they have that thing throughout the industry where everybody reveres them and knows them. His is really seeped into culture where people have such a reverence for him. And you can't, there's not like this long, 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 long list of these big, massive records. But I find it interesting that he is beyond the music industry. His name means something just to all of these hip hop heads, still generation after generation after generation. And that's, really an anomaly in this business. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and my argument is sort of twofold, right? There's the spiritual argument and then there's the musical argument. 
Um, the spiritual argument um, is that, well, he has a pretty tragic story, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, when you die so young um, and then you have like an al whole album stuff come out like right after you die <laughs> that is kind of, um, you know, forward thinking and, and really innovative, uh, you know, that, so the combination of his, his creative output uh, and, oops, I think, boy, this is all <laughs> crazy. My, I'm sorry, my keeps changing mm. uh, on, on my... Uh, the yeah, irony on, of you talking about a sonic <laughs> genius and your mic messing up is just there we delicious. Go. There you go. There this, you should go. Be, this should be better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Sorry, y'all. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So here we go. So there's that part. There's mm -hmm. the religiosity part. There's the, 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 the grand story that we are all identifying with and or measuring ourselves against, which is this tragic figure who works until the very end mm -hmm. uh, and who is cared for by his mother and a circle of friends. And so there is this loss, this right. idea of loss at the center of things, lost opportunity, like lost right. appreciation. We all identify with that, but that is not enough to explain it. And so what this book tries to do is get that other part, which is the, the, the mechanics and the science of Dilla, which is that he created a completely new time field that did not exist before him. That's a and fascinating so that's why the book part of the book. The I mean, there is sort of this, almost like manual like tech manual part i i the part in the beginning where you're talking about rhythm i will admit that i'm lying in my bed trying to clap and then i went okay you're trying to also go to sleep at the same time so stop mm. stop clapping in your bed yeah. he you talked about the uma i think um can you explain a little bit about the uma because he has a direct creative and financial and everything tied to tribe and then the Soulquarians from then so you kind of give us a little background on that. Sure, sure. Um, well, Q-Tip essentially plucked him from obscurity. He was introduced to Q-Tip by one of George Clinton's protégés, who was a neighborhood fixture in James Neighborhood Conan Gardens in Detroit, named Ann Fiddler. Who I Amp love. Fiddler we love him. Yeah. 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 Who yeah. doesn't? Yeah. Man's incredible um, and incredibly generous uh, and, a, and a paragon for us all. So Ann Fiddler introduced introduces James to Q-Tip and Q-Tip just happens to listen to the demo in the next couple of days. And he's immediately, he immediately sees, and listen, I've heard some of the songs on this demo to my ear. I'll be like, eh, but Q-Tip heard something. So he calls James at his house and says, we need to get you out here, like to New York to do like, and he, for the next year or so, Q-Tip becomes an evangelist for JD. He doesn't charge him any money. He doesn't do anything like he doesn't become his manager or anything like that. Uh, it's just, he just does it because he wants to help and he does. And so he introduces him to mad skills and to the far side. And to, like, there's a lot of runoff from Q-Tip's production work. Um, and he introduces him to Buster and to, 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 to Dela and, mad skills and then the idea 
forms in Q-Tip's head that we need, meaning tribe and our crew, we need to also be have a seat at the table when it comes to these production opportunities. There are all these other teams, the track masters, the hitmen, you know, following other crews like the bomb squad, right? Production crews that are really getting hits. They're getting a lot of work. They're making money. Um, we can do that our way. And so that way was the UMA. So the idea was it was going to be five dudes. It was going to be Q-Tip, Ali, JD, uh, Raphael Sadiq from Tony, 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 and this guy named Michael Archer from Virginia, who we now know as D'Angelo. So it was going to be those five. What happened was Raphael and D'Angelo were not really going to be a part of that crew. Um. That's a JD lot of ended egos because that's uh, I mean, that's a lot of talent, but I've I'm dealt saying. with these guys. That's mm. a lot. I mean, I have to say it's an ingenious idea, but you're going, wow, Rafa, talk about Raphael's a kind of a control freak. You know, it's a lot. And yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, you know, uh, JD ended up doing most of the fundamental work. Right. I all want to say that Q-Tip did not do work because Q-Tip would, you know, in, in my discussions with him, he said, listen, I understand that there was this narrative of JD, you know, doing tracks and then me getting a cut of those tracks. But Q-Tip said, am I really not not supposed to be paid for my work and my time when JD doesn't show up to the mix sessions? Like, <laughs> like that is completely legit. Yeah, that but, is true. That is absolutely legit. That, <laughs> the mix section can make or break the song. <laughs> you know what See, I mean? Here's the thing. James is not a mature adult. Right. He is. This is his first time in the business. He's just making track, 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 track. That's that beginning time when it's passion and you're just, the, the, it's all, you're being creative. So it's all coming out of, you're not even thinking business. It's just coming. I've dealt with artists like that, especially when they're young and they're new. It's like, that energy is coming out of them. These records are coming out of them. They're not thinking about the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The problem was <laughs> Q-Tips envisioned the UMA very much as a Tribe Call Quest was, which was whenever they write a song, it's credited to all of them. Right. A uh, Tribe Call Quest. The whole album is not produced by Q-Tip or Q-Tip and Ali. It's produced right. by a Tribe Call Quest. And so he envisioned the UMA like this. The problem for James is he can't make a name for himself under those circumstances. Right. right. He's too anonymous it, at that point, you know, yeah, isn't it's all rumor and innuendo. And right. so then the result of that is that when the Janet Jackson song comes out, which is mm -hmm. really just Terry Lewis and Jimmy jam and Alex rich were modeling a production after the Uma, which is really, you know, JD mm -hmm. uh, that it's like people think that it's JD. Because Q-Tip is on it. You told till it's gone. I wanted to ask you yeah. about that. One of my that favorite sort of, songs of all Yeah, time. me yeah. too. And that sort of, and if you think about it now in hindsight, it is very unlike any song she's ever done before. If you if you think kind of like. Which why it was the first single to come when they were changing her image and right. really coming. That's what they chose to lead with because it was absolute. The image was different. The music was different. The beat was different. The flow of how she sang to it was different. The cadence was different. Everything. Listen, I, I respect I respect you both, but I'm going to make a counter argument. Please do. Mm -hmm. May I? May I? Yes. Mm -hmm. Listen, <laughs> one of the reasons that Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam 
were able to thrive as producers in the 90s when mm-hmm. their their mentor Prince was not. Right? Prince mm-hmm. really fell the F off, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think after the Black Album, he he did not, he was not on the cutting edge of what music was doing because he had not made peace with the breakbeat. Right. Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam from Rhythm Nation. Now Rhythm Nation is 1990, right? Yep. 1991, something like that. 1990. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They integrated the breakbeat, right? The song Rhythm Nation is a uh, Sly and the Family Stone sample. The whole thing. Right. right. So yeah. they had already made peace with that breakbeat. Then Janet's next turn, next creative turn came with uh, the velvet rope. That's the way love goes. Right. I think that was right. the velvet rope. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That is. And if no, you, no, that's the if, Janet, is that Janet record. The, the oh, velvet rope Jan- is right. got till it's gone. Right. Got it. So my apologies to Craig Seymour, because he'd probably kill me if I got the chance. <laughs> wrong. So my apologies. Um, sorry. And you with know a sword, he, wait, you know with a sword and a knife, you cannot mess up Janet. He will yeah. I'm saying, yeah. I'm saying, so my apologies. I, I will lay my head on the chopping block of the master, Craig Seymour. All right. So anyway, the Janet album for me was the turn the mid nineties turn. And I remember so well. That's 1993, right? Right. The combination of the fact that it was, um, that it was, uh, I believe that's uh, impeach the president, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The impeach the president sample. uh, And it's uh, with a James Brown um, uh, sample on top of it. uh, Papa don't take no mess. And then like, this total mid nineties uh, uh, fashion sense in the, like it was really like sexy and just like a great, totally yeah, like, a great. But yeah. that ethos was already there All right. when they heard su- the sometimes remix, brand new heavy sometimes remix, which is what they modeled. Got till it's gone after mm-hmm. and okay. got till it's gone. Do, t- contains a sample of Joni Mitchell, but it's something that they've been doing since the early nineties. Mm-hmm. And the thing that it has is that it has a kick drum that is delayed, literally shifted over digitally by a few milliseconds, which gives the rhythm track its rolling quality. And then the baseline of- is played freehand mm. like JD. So, I'm sorry. What, what I was going to ask you then, then what was, and we, I guess I have to defend myself. I'm a huge Jam and Lewis fans. So I wasn't like acute, but what then, why was there sort of this controversy then about ownership or was there my misreading? Um, there misreading was, it? there was, I think a passive aggressive reaction from James to that song. He, for years, he has not been able to put his own name on his production. Then he sees his mentor Q-Tip go into a recording studio with Janet Jackson and come out with a song that sounds like it could have been (laughs) produced by JD, Mm -hmm. that everybody thinks is produced by JD because Q-Tip is on it and it sounds like a Uma production. So people started, hey, did you do that? Did y'all do that? You did that. And James just started letting people think that he did it and mm. also began to insinuate that he did it. And in some uh, cases told people he did it. Okay. <laughs> why would, why would St. James lie? Why would St. James lie? Right, well, right. you know what? He's not a saint. <laughs> that's why. And there's a, there's a story in the book that's very similar with his father. His father claims to have written. It's a shame 
by the spinners. <laughs> I can find no corroboration for that. Nobody in Motown remembers him like that. Uh, you know, Stevie Wonder's brother, Calvin Hardaway, said absolutely not. Uh, you know, I spoke to G.C. Cameron, who said he was in Lula Mae Hardaway's basement. Stevie was still a teenager when he played that song for him on the clavinet. Could Stevie have taken it from uh, DeWitt Yancey? Maybe. But, you know, maybe not. It's just a vet. It's a parallel, isn't it? Like between the father and the son, this idea of being at the mercy of greater powers in the music business. And that is what eventually leads Jay Dilla to declare independence from the UMA. Ultimately, this, you know, the Soulquarians too, in a way to change his name, uh, to change his sound again. The good yeah. old music industry. She'll do that to you. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to tell you this. And then I want to, we both want to talk to you about Soulquarian, but just a very funny story. So when Gato is gone came out, so like 90, what, 93, Courtney, yeah. 93, 94. No, Godzilla is gone is later. That's like Velvet Rope's up around 97. 97. All right. I believe it's like 97. Q-Tip um, had emceed a talent show at my son's school. I don't even know how I conned him into that, but he had. And none of the kids, so they're all like six or seven. None of them knew who he was. And I was like, because he wasn't to them famous. Two weeks later, that single comes out. They all come running to me going, is he coming back? And I went, no, you had your chance to care about him. And you did not. Lucian is sitting in front of the TV. The video comes on and he's sort of singing along. And then he turns to me, he goes, wait a minute. Joni Mitchell's a real person. And I went, yes, Joni Mitchell. is. A, she's not just something. Come on. He's just not something that to Q-tip invented out of thin air. So that's that's my. Um, I love that. Ridiculous. Game. He's like, she's real. And I went, yeah, she's real. Um, so Quarians, please. So. Yeah, that's that's the part of the book I'm now headed into. I'm a slow reader. I apologize. Um, it's a long book. It's a long book. pages. Yeah, it is a long book. It is. And there's no I, pictures. That, there's no pictures. That's right. That's by by. Well, there's one picture. Okay. There's one photo at the beginning of the book. OK, but I, that's also on purpose. Right. I wanted to I wanted this to have a particular aesthetic of the grids and, you know, line drawings was the okay. idea for this book. Uh Okay, well, so Aquarians really is just a, a catchphrase in a way for what happened when traditional musicians started emulating Dilla's rhythmic feel. And again, just quickly, Dilla time is the combination of straight time and swung time simultaneously. Straight and swung rhythms put in conflict with each other creating that sort of rhythmic friction that feels kind of drunken, limping, loping. And Dilla essentially really had been developing toward this, but really it became a thing once he bought his own MPC uh, in, I think, around 97, 98, and started to really subvert or to use the timing functions on the MPC to move elements around to swing certain elements to not swing others to shift the timing of the snares and you know kicks and things like that so uh d'angelo and questlove are in the studio at the beginnings of what will become voodoo and they start listening to all this new music coming out from jd and every tape they get is like worse than the last like what the what's he doing with this you know i say worse than the rick rubin hank shockley sense of the term so like, this is the worst shit. Uh, like, it's just wrong. It's like, but it's so right. 
So they start trying to do that. They start putting themselves in conflict with each other. There's this story in the book where Pino Palladino, Welsh bassist, comes into the sessions and they say to him, uh, okay, we want you to lag behind Questlove's drums. Um, and so uh, D'Angelo is playing on keyboards in one place behind the drums and and Pino is playing bass in another place behind Quest drum, but Quest keeps going back with them and you can't remain in conflict with a beat that won't stay ahead of you. So they tell Amir to take his headphones off so that he's playing on the grid essentially and they're lagging behind the grid, creating that micro rhythmic conflict that you hear in voodoo. It took a while for traditional musicians to, to do this because a machine, you can program a machine and it holds it, but it's harder for traditional instruments to do that. So that rhythmic innovation combined with this aesthetic that is not just JDs, but also back from the Uma and Tribe Called Quest, this, the idea of what soul music sounded like before the machines took over. So it's this really interesting combination of harmonically, you know, these sort of analog sounds of soul, but with this very, very new rhythmic approach that did not exist before JD. The combination of those two things in some way is neo soul, right? Even though that term yeah, existed like, before yeah, then, nobody it that is term. new, <laughs> yeah. right? And it, my argument I make is JD is neo. He's the grid breaker. He's the matrix breaker. He's wow. neo, right? <laughs> So the Soul Quarians is sort of the name for this soul group of people who feel this way, who feel that they want to do this. And initially, it's just four guys. It's James, uh, D'Angelo, Questlove, and James Poyser, because all their birthdays are very close to each other on the calendar. Mm -hmm. Aquarians. But it also includes Pisces, got, got Common in there, got <laughs> Erica in there. Uh, you know, um, really, it's about a feeling. It's about um, reaching back with the machine for what we lost because of the machine. Interestingly, you know, an interesting way to kind of think That's of it. That's such but. a weird, it, when you think about it, I mean, cause I mean, Courtney, this is more your lane because you actually know production, but it's weird to think that something that came out of machine is then going to be like almost replicated to reference it, but not be it at the same time. And it oh. never happened really before then. Sorry, Courtney, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I love it. Listen, that's the genius of it, right? And I think that is part of the special sauce that just, you can't really explain why that works and why that is. It's the special sauce. It's that thing that makes something great. Why do you think he was, I mean, was, so he literally said that you, I mean, the thesis is, and this was always that they set this template, which was duplicated to death. I mean, mm -hmm. that was sort of the 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 kind of heyday of my so-called career was mm -hmm. this sort of all this kind of alternative black music, neo soul. Right. Everybody hated that title coming out. How did they right. keep from being the same song over and over? What kept it unique, do you think? Meaning Soulquarian stuff? Yeah, Soulquarian, yeah. And JD's because, contribution to it then? I, because, again, with any sort of uh, particular rhythmic feel and, and within any rhythmic feel and with, within any um, uh, 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 sonic approach, 
or harmonic approach, there's an infinite number of, of permutations and combinations. I mean, it's just like saying, well, you know, Bob Dylan only plays the acoustic guitar. What's to keep, what's to keep him from doing the same song over and over and over again. It's just just really just about what you, you know, the creativity that you apply to your song craft. What was that sort of, would you say, Courtney, I'm sorry. But was that sort of what you'd say was the commercial peak of uh, Dilla's career or what sort of started, what did that, um, what was what happened next after Soul Crunch? Because a lot of those records were number one records, right? Well, uh, not records that were produced by JD. JD never had a number one pop record. The highest record that on the pop charts he ever got was, I think, something like to number twenty three with "The Light" by Common. It didn't. Mm. Nothing he produced. Now, which I is not think to that say, was I'm, a number one record for some reason. I thought mm-hmm. that was a really big number one record for Common. It was it, it was top five R and B, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and but it was not a number one record in pop. And when we're talking about producers who are referenced less than Dilla, who are bigger on the pop charts, like a uh, you know Timbaland doesn't have a uh, Timbaland days all over the world in his right. honor, you know. <laughs> do, Dre Day wrote Dre Day is a song, but it ain't a festival. <laughs> so uh, it's really the pop chart is just a reference for me to to talk about why Dilla is so uh, why does he get this level of adulation? So his commercial peak was uh the year 2000. That is the year also that MCA awarded him, gave him uh a really incredible multi-layered record deal for his own label, his own album, uh, for production on other MCA, uh, acts. And, uh, in the next two years, he basically pisses it away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't say that he pisses it away creatively, creatively. He's still incredible, but he is unbound by, by the consequences of what he has signed on to do. Right. When you sign with a major label and they give you a whole bunch of money, they haven't given you freedom. They've given you a mortgage and you have to pay the mortgage and how you pay the mortgage is by delivering an album that is expected and that they can market. And he did not do that. He immediately went left. And we can all say as fans, oh, well, I love that left turn. I love the fact that he didn't want to do any of, produce any of the tracks on his own solo album. He just wanted to rhyme. Great. But that's not the album you deliver to MCA. You know, not without everybody being on board. Uh, And you also have to deliver it on time. (laughs) One of the things, one of the things that is a real bane of even, you know, Anybody who's worked in the music business, you have to do shit quickly before your rabbi leaves the building. <laughs> right? Courtney is Courtney is literally like no, raising the roof there with that. I, he knows. For my own, Chino XL and I, we visited JD in 99, right? To work on his first album, his second album, which was going to be his first for Warner. Mm-hmm. And the reason we got moved from American over to Warner is because Steve Baker, right, was there. And liked Chino. Well, Steve Baker got blown out. We were lucky enough that some the person who came in, David uh, David 
David Kahn, what's his name? David Kahn, David Kahn, David Kahn. Uh, Kahane, you know, that guy Kahane. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, he came in and really loved Chino mm. and that was great. So we were saved then. Right. And then he got blown out. Mm. And by the time Chino was done with his album, he took two long years to make his album. Our rabbi was gone. Yeah, yo. you had no cheerleader. You needed, if, listen, the worst thing that can happen to an artist is the person who signed you and the people who are really into your shit. Here comes the label. We're making changes, layoffs, and people go. Because yeah. the new one comes in. And if they, if they, baby, they will just look and be like, yeah, all of that's gone. Yeah. With just so in, Wendy in a, Goldstein. With a swoop, right? Yeah, exactly. So Wendy Goldstein. His A&R, the person who offered him this deal, mm-hmm. no sooner does she offer him this deal and he starts working on his album, she gets a life-changing job offer from Brian <laughs> Turner at Priority, who's just about to take over Capital, right? You know, mm-hmm. part of Capital Records. And so she is going to, at first she's going to go to Priority, then she's going to go up to Capital, right? Mm-hmm. And she's going to be an A&R person at Capital Records. And MCA would not match the offer. Mm. And uh, so she left. Who wouldn't? Right. Women didn't get offered those kinds of positions uh, often. And Wendy is a superior talent, executive talent, right? So she did the right thing. She left. But sorry, James, there's nobody here who understands what you're doing. And then by right. that time, MCA's rabbi had left the building. MCA was going to be folded mm. uh, into I don't, uh, Interscope. <laughs> And, you know? that, and you know, whenever that happens, when the labels, when the label is absorbed, most of the roster is not coming with them. Yeah. And so no sooner does he sort of get his, his release or drop from that situation. I'm not even sure that he what, did, did get an official release, um, even though he claimed it. Uh, he gets sick right. in the early 2003. And then, then it becomes another kind of race with time. Right. That. He had lupus, right? Is that what he had? Or No. No, I, 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 again, he may have had lupus, but what the disease he suffered from and killed him was another autoimmune disease called, called TTP. But even then, I think it may have been diagnosed. It, it, the, TTP is part of a family of blood, cl- blood clotting diseases mm. uh, called TMA, um, thrombotic my, microangio, microangiopathy. And so it's TTP and HUS and AHUS, all this sort of family of diseases. And he may actually have had undiagnosed AHUS, which did, would explain why he didn't really respond to the treatment he was getting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that is a very sad story. Now, lupus can be a cause of those things. And he did show some of the signs of lupus, but he did not die from lupus. He died because of complications of the blood disease. Mm. And young, right? How old was he when he passed? Uh, he was 32. Wow. He was 32. That's where do you see his legacy is like, but who, who do you hear now that is referencing him or who is aware of him? Cause you know, I mean, we all know, but you more than both of us, how rap music is, you know, like mm. minute by minute by minute, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the answer to that question is who don't, who don't I hear, you know, like his influence is pervasive. It may not be 
mostly in hip hop now. Like I think it was very pervasive in hip hop in 2015, but it's more pervasive in other areas now. So I think in the world of jazz, he has made as indelible a stamp on a young generation as maybe Charlie Parker had or Louis Armstrong had on an earlier generation. Um, everybody wants to play like JD in jazz now. Like, you know, if they're not doing going the traditional route, you're going to hear Dilla rhythms, Dilla's approach to harmony, um, very much throughout jazz, whether it's a uh, Robert Glasper or Jason Moran or or Brad Meldow or you know, any number of Jose James, you hear it throughout jazz. In pop music, you know, it'll it'll pop up like uh, the 1975 had a song called Sincerity is Scary uh, a couple of years ago. And that's completely in in Dilla time. You have uh, un, un, <clears throat> uncategorizable bands, but had have global reach like Hiatus Coyote. They're uh, the sold out tour of America right now. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, they are his rhythmic descendants. Yeah. They're taking rhythms in places that he never even dreamed of taking them. There's Anderson Pock, um, a drummer as well as a singer uh, and composer who flits in and out of, you know, that kind of time signature. And then, you know, obviously the whole sort of alt side of hip hop, um, whether it's, kind of donut descendants of donuts related beats or, or descendants of his more sort of core JD sound. It's all there. Uh, This is a time feel that is not going to ever go away. That's what's amazing about it. Like he literally gave the world a gift that no one can own. And I guess for me, I wanted to remedy a bit of his own obscurity in the face of musicologists beginning to tackle what these rhythms were and call them, you know, a micro rhythm, micro, like a digital micro rhythm, like, no, 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 no. Micro rhythms have existed throughout all cultures and everything. This is something particularly new. And it actually is a time feel on a par with straight and swung because it is a descendant of that way of thinking about, rhythm, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's put together that way on a drum machine. Because the MPC was the first drum machine that allowed users to make some elements straight and some elements swung simultaneously. Why anybody would want to do that, I don't know. Even Roger Lynn, who made the machine, said, I don't know why I did that. <laughs> I don't know. Because every other machine had you, you could either swing every element globally or not, not individual elements, making them all different, which creates conflict. So it's never going to go away. And so my, my feeling was, let's name it for the person who actually pioneered it, because he is ending up as a footnote in musicological documents. Uh, and he was also ending up a footnote in his own story. Like the music was a footnote in his own story. It was about I don't know, donuts and lo-fi. Like that is not JD's primary contribution to music. He but the excellent reinvented part of, rhythm. But the excellent part about that is now you have a book out there, Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm. So people need to pick it up because it is an important piece of music history, an important piece of hip-hop history. And I think we need to dig a little deeper than people just knowing the legend of something and actually knowing why 
this whole mythology of the man came about and learn about the man and how he created his rhythms and everything. Thank you for coming on, Dan. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Dan. Thank I mean, you, like, you. you're, you're, you're really, so smart. I'm so you glad really I know gave smart me so much people. more insight into him because yeah. I feel like people always talk to me about him. I know I do have some of his records, but I'm, you know, I'm just always confused. I'm like, well, why do people love him? They, they, they talk about him almost like he's a deity or something. Like, you know what I mean? They really speak yeah. to him with such reverence and you've kind of really given us more insight so thank you and you guys really need to pick up the book it's out now it has a gorgeous cover it has Amy's a gorgeous holding cover. Up the cover you can't Which, see it luckily for you you can't we're audio but i will we'll, i will we'll put a just, link up guys to I, the book put it on, on our gorgeous. twitter to be on our facebook you know what to do Thank you, Dan. Thank, Thank you, Dan. Amy. Thank you. Thank you guys for joining us today on I'm Gonna Let You Finish on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Remember, star, leave a rating, leave a star, leave a review, tell a friend, follow us. We're on all of the places, TikTok, IG, Facebook, but everybody who's like us because we're all old and, and all of the places. <laughs> we love you. We'll see you next week. Bye. All right. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.